Hello and welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is Stephen Robles and joining me again this week is Andrew O'Hara. Thanks for joining me, Andrew. Uh, Of course, as always. So it was great to have you on this week because I think you have a plethora of iPads at your disposal at the moment. I think you've you've now compared (laughs) the new 2020 iPad Pro to the 2018 model, the 2017 model. The uh, pre-release, to, uh, I think every model. <laughs> Pretty much, and and both sizes. So it's not just the new pros versus the old pros versus the older pros. Right. It is the 10.5 inch versus the 11 versus the 11 and 12.9, 12.9, 12.9. So it's a lot of iPads to compare. So do you have the new 11 and 12.9 inch? I do. Oh, okay. Well, you had a review go up and there's a video and we'll link the article and video in the show notes. But why don't you tell us, Andrew, kind of your impressions with it, having it for... I guess so you've had it a week. Did it arrive last Wednesday? Yeah, something like that. Okay. I use I use the iPad a lot for what it's worth. Uh, I do a lot of video editing on there. I do most of it on my Mac Pro or my MacBook Pro, but I've been doing more and more on my iPad. I've done a ton of photo editing on there with like, massive raw photos and stuff. So I've always been um, a pretty heavy user of my iPad, a little less since we've been trapped at home this entire time because my iPad right. is usually what I take with me when I'm like heading out to go shoot photo or video you know, outside of the studio. Right, right. I've been using the new one a lot and while it is a pretty small change year over year, it's still a an impressive device. I know a lot of people stuck with the 2017. The 2018 was a big upgrade year, got the redesign and a bunch of new features, but for a lot of people, it was like one year they couldn't justify going to the 2017 and 2018. So that's why we did the 2017 versus 2020 iPad Pro comparison today, because there's a lot of those people that hadn't upgraded yet. Right. So when you're looking at that comparison, it's just drastic. There are huge gains in performance. Uh, 2018 to 2020 performance differences are pretty minimal. It's mainly just that extra GPU core. And you do notice that on video exports, it's definitely faster on the new ones. Hmm. But most people aren't going to notice the performance differences day to day. Ultra wide lens is fun. Um, It's kind of odd. There's no portrait mode there, especially with a LiDAR kind of helping with that depth. So I kind of expected a portrait mode to come, but it it didn't. At least maybe it'll come in a software update, but right now it's not there. Otherwise, I'm just excited. I mean, it's a great new iPad Pro. There's no real kind of drawbacks except for the fact it's not as exciting 2018 to 2020. If you have a 2018, the upgrade is kind of just... Probably you're probably just not going to do it. It's not really a huge justifying factor right. there. I would just pick up the Magic Keyboard and stick with the 2018 models. But for anyone else, the new iPad right, right. Pro is pretty awesome. So one point of information, I think the 2020 model now shoots 4K at 24 frames per second. Yeah, the new ones can shoot at uh, 24, 30, and 60 at 4K. I mean, the biggest difference in what I'd like to hear your experience with is the new LiDAR scanner, especially when it comes to AR, augmented reality, and... I don't know if you got a chance to measure to mess around with the measure app with the LiDAR scanner, if there's any difference or improvements there. As far as the LiDAR scanner, anyone who's just picking up this iPad Pro is not necessarily going to notice really anything with the LiDAR scanner. There's no like user facing app that's going to just show you, you know, the mesh of the room that you're looking at. You need to have some sort of third-party app to kind of dive into that a little bit further. And that ARKit 3.5 update that went out to developers launched pretty much at the same time. Mm. So it's been kind of trickling out as we're seeing the developers start to work on that. So in our coverage, we got some pre-release apps from developers that I um, am friends with on Twitter. And I've been able to kind of check out some videos and some existing models of how that LiDAR scanner is working. And it's very cool. It is very fast. It's a great job. The... um, 
oh, I can't even think of the word off the top of my head, but being able to separate out a subject from the background. Occlusion, so being able to separate something, yeah, that's really nice. I was working with this uh, app, I think it was like a primer or something like that, and it allows you to preview wallpaper, tiles, and paint like in your home before you go ahead and buy it, and it's very cool with this LiDAR app, you can, or their app using LiDAR, it'll like literally separate things that you have sitting on the counter from your backsplash. And you can see like tile on your backsplash hmm. and it just separates out stuff that you have sitting there like a coffee cup or something. It'll like put the stuff behind it. It's really cool to see in that augmented reality. So I think LiDAR is going to be helpful for that. As far as the measure app goes, there are some big differences there as well. Yeah, well, that, that's what I was curious too, because using it, I've done it a couple times on my iPhone and it can be a little frustrating, you know, trying to really get a pinpointed oh starting endpoint. Yes. So, so how does it work now on the new iPad? Okay. So a couple things that are really beneficial. One of them, it's kind of a small thing, but it makes a huge impact. You can stand further away. Mm-hmm. So we were just working in this room and I'm trying to quickly measure the wall just to get a ballpark idea of how much um, wallpaper and tile we're going to need to cover the wall. So I have my old iPad and I'm trying to measure and it keeps telling me to get closer so I'm getting like, you know, two or three feet away from the wall, trying to point it at the corner and then try to go all the way across like a, you know, a 12 foot span or something to the other side of the room. And it is getting inaccurate and I'm so close to the wall. I can't really even see where I'm like looking at things. So it was very frustrating to try to do with the new one. You can stand a lot further back, which makes it a lot easier to measure those larger surfaces like that. So that's one thing. It gets a little fuzzy on what exactly the features are that are in the app that the old one can do. But I know when using the new one, it was doing a lot better job of detecting surfaces. I have some weird corners with like multiple areas and 45 degree angles and stuff like that. The new one was very quickly able to detect those surfaces and move the cursor like flat against all of them just as I moved it across. It also will put a line against any vertices. So if you're going around a windowsill or something like that, and there's like a 90 degree angle, it would just put a line there and would snap to that edge. So that was very handy when trying to measure those surfaces. That's cool. Um, And then it also keeps a running tally of all of your measurements. So I'm able to like measure this art on the wall, measure the wall distances and compute all this stuff. And then there's a little list that you can pull up right inside of the measure app and see everything that you measured, copy it out, share it, put it into a note, whatever you need to do. So that's a really handy way to actually keep track of everything. And it makes sense because if you're in the measure app, and you're like, okay, my wall is 13 and a half feet long. And I'm like, okay, I need to remember 13 and a half feet. Like leave the measure app, put it into like your notes app or something, come back to the measure app, then measure your height and stuff like that. It seemed weird. So I like that it has this running tally in there that you just go to and copy out whenever you need it. Did you try to scan any documents and did you notice any difference there? Uh, I didn't scan any documents yet with it. I I assume it'll just do hopefully a better job of detecting the edges and straightening and everything, but I have not tried it yet. Okay. Well, it's interesting. So you you have both versions. Are you going to keep one and return one? Are you going to keep both sizes or what you doing with those? Uh, I'm definitely going to keep the 12.9 inch for sure. I did pick up the new Bridge Pro Plus, right. which I guess is kind of a hot topic as well. So I picked up that for the new 12.9. I mean, I guess it works with the old 12.9 inch iPad Pro too. So that's the same. I mean, the, the physical shape is the same, right? but I am going to stick with the new one. I told you last time we talked about the iPads, I have no storage on my old one. So I really needed to upgrade just for the storage alone. While this thing is still worth money, um, offload my previous generation. So I'm going to definitely keep the 12.9 inch, probably get rid of the 11 inch though. I've not used the 11 inch in a while. And that is an attractive screen size. It's so compact. It's really, right. uh, it's a really tempting little device, but I, I need a little bit more space for uh, split screen apps and video work. Right. Did you get the terabyte? Did you go all the way? 
No, I didn't. Oh, okay, I didn't. okay. <laughs> I mean, I've it's already a splurge to upgrade this thing anyway. I've been I got the 2018 model, so I only right, went with right. the 512. I stuck with the middle. I mean, I'm going from 64 to 512, and I can use external storage, so it's not as huge of a deal. Yeah, you know, thanks to USB C and that external hard drive support. The new iPad also has Wi Fi 6 support. Do you have a router that supports that as well? Yeah, I have the Velop AX line. I don't know what they are, but the Wi Fi 6 series, the the tri-band ones. I think they're coming out with some dual-band ones as well. But I have the tri-band one, and it is nice. I mean, I'm not noticing any huge differences, but I keep that network very clean at the moment. I only have a few devices on there, right. so it doesn't get nearly as bogged down because I have a lot of IoT stuff on my regular network. That's just a whole separate network. It's a whole separate router and everything. If you do a speed test, do you notice any difference between the two, the 2018 model and the 2020? It peaks higher. Exactly. It'll it'll get a little bit higher when it's like peaking, but other than that, there's not a there's the average is not really that different. It's I mean I have a great router otherwise. It's still a tri-band yeah, yeah. um mesh network before that. So it's not like it's an issue particularly before, but I was really excited for the Wi-Fi six. And I'm I'm trying to kind of keep an eye out on battery life as well. I know that's another benefit, especially with phones, going to Wi-Fi six because it doesn't have to ping the router as often. It's able to kind of stay in that sleep state. Gotcha. There should be some battery gains as well. Well, let us know as you uh, experiment with it and as more apps come out with AR support. Love to see how that LiDAR sensor works with that. Keep it, check out all of Andrew's videos. He had a video review, comparisons, the article, and we'll link all that in show notes. So I wanted to touch on Zoom. Zoom has been in the news a lot lately, and especially now as the work from home thing has become ubiquitous and pretty much everyone's having to figure out how to do it. Zoom is the de facto, the go-to conferencing, web meeting, service. They have been doing some shady things to say on the back end. We've had a couple articles come out and we'll have links to this in show notes, but you know, with Zoom, you could use the sign up with Facebook option when you're first creating your account. And it was found out that Zoom was sending some data back to Facebook as you use the Zoom app without approving or interacting or letting you know. So there was that part, which Zoom says it's might be fixing. And most notoriously, and I've seen a lot of articles about this is how Zoom actually installs on a Mac. So when you install the app on your iPhone or iPad, you know, it's sandboxed and it can't do some of the nefarious things it's doing on the Mac. But when you download Zoom for your Mac, you know, it doesn't come down like a normal DMG file. It's this package script. And this guy on Twitter, he has a thread about what exactly it's doing. We put it in the article. This William wrote this article about how Zoom macOS install is shady. And it's also side note, Zoom has claimed that their video chats are end-to-end encrypted, and it's been discovered that they're not. So that's another issue. But when it installs, Zoom is actually doing this thing where it's bypassing the traditional installer tools. You don't have to click install. Using these pre-installation scripts and manually unpacking the app and doing all the stuff. And if you don't, if you're not logged in as an admin, it's doing some other shady things, prompting for a system-level password. And so just super shady how it's being installed. And this is a call to anyone who might know. I actually tweeted at John Gruber about this because he's been tweeting a lot about these practices from Zoom. If anyone knows how to cleanly uninstall every component of Zoom from a Mac, I would love to know because I've had to install it (laughs) on all my Macs. And now with all the stuff going on, I really want to remove it. But sure that there has to be some kind of process to really make sure you clean everything out. And I know there's apps like app cleaner and stuff where it'll search your entire Mac for stuff. But the way that Zoom is installing itself, I'm a little suspicious. And so if any of our listeners have any leads or idea about uninstalling Zoom and removing all the components, I'd love to hear from you. Tweet at me at Stephen Robles. The link's in the show notes. 
suspicious about how it's installing, sharing data, promising end-to-end encryption, and it's actually not. And so they recently came out with a statement, and Zoom's people said that they are not going to release any more feature releases, but they are promising to, quote-unquote, fix security and privacy flaws. And the fix is kind of an interesting way of putting it. I think they just need to correct their methods for install and actually be honest with their privacy and encryption claims. Right. Like they act, they act like it was a bug. Right. It's clearly like designed from the get. Like they didn't, it wasn't a bug that they said, oh, it's fully encrypted. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, those are just shady practices. Right. And it's just, it's dishonest. So they have claimed that they're going to be, quote unquote, fixing all these things and they won't release any new features until uh, this is all patched up or whatever. But I just find this whole story interesting because we're at a moment now where Zoom has just kind of become almost installed on every person's device everywhere who works on a team or in a corporate environment. I don't know. I mean, for a company to kind of be caught red-handed, I think this shows that if you have shady practices, eventually they will come out in some way. And and now with all eyes kind of on Zoom as a useful tool, because one of the things is, I think we have an article going up soon, you know, there are some alternatives, you know, you can try and use Skype, Google Hangouts that kind of exists somewhere, you can try FaceTime group video chats, you know, and also like Microsoft Teams has a weird video feature you can do. Facebook is actually releasing a standalone video conferencing app now. There's GoToMeeting and there's WebEx. But to be honest, like all those other services, I don't know if you've ever used any of those, Andrew, but they're all kind of lackluster or janky. I've used, I used a few of those. I think, doesn't Slack also have a built-in like conferencing, video conferencing thing too? I think it does. I know you can at least make like a, like an audio call over IP kind of thing. Yeah. It does seem like video. I thought they did. Yeah. I think you can just kind of, I'll tell you what, let's see. I'm clicking your name right now (laughs) in Slack. It says call Andrew. Yeah, sure enough. All right. Video call. Look at that. Look at that. So you can even video call in Slack. Yeah, so you can do it in Slack. How many people are using Slack? And that's a, a, a good solution there. For the one-on-one stuff, I just recently found a free app called Screen.so. William and I were using this as we were looking at images and some video editing. It, you can do the, the one-to-one video call, but you also can do optionally do screen sharing. You can have two separate cursors. So William could go on my screen and kind of you jump through my video timeline and stuff. And then he was also able to switch to annotation mode and mark stuff up. So he's like, okay, well, what's going on here? What about we use this clip? It was kind of a really cool collaboration and it worked really, really smoothly. So uh, just screen.so is the website. That's a, uh, I think just recently exited beta. And that's a really cool one for just one-to-one video conferencing collaboration stuff. That's interesting. And you know, this is funny. This was actually a VNC application previously. Well, that is there's that is screens with an with an s at the end, like plural. This is screen dot uh. so. That is screens or screens four. I think they're on, which is still a VNC application that's still around. Gotcha. Because it used to be I teleport, mm-hmm. which I used all the time, and then it transitioned to this. Anyway, so if you have to use Zoom for work, I want to make a recommendation here. I would try to use it on an iPad or iPhone first. You know, you can join and host calls on those devices, no problem. The issue is you don't get all the hosting tools and features when you're on a mobile device. And it's a little harder to work. You know, if you have a bunch of participants, you know, muting certain participants or unmuting and all that kind of stuff becomes a little more of a challenge on a mobile device. But I would recommend trying to use it there. 
And you can actually use Zoom in a web browser without installing anything on your Mac. They do have a web app. They don't make it super obvious how to do it or where to get to it, but you can do it in a browser. And I would recommend trying to do that first, just because it's, again, more and more news coming out, what they're doing with your data in the background, unknown, you know, how encrypted it is or how safe it is. There was even an article where there was some security flaw that was allowing people to kind of like access the camera and microphone uh, in certain ways if you were on a Zoom call. So anyway, and there's also, I don't know if you've seen this too, there's like a Zoom bombing where, you know, a lot of people are just putting their Zoom meeting ID out on social media to say, hey, let's do a Zoom call. And then <laughs> spammers are kind of jumping into meetings and doing inappropriate things. So of course, don't do that. That's dangerous too. <laughs> I would recommend using it on your iPad, iPhone, try the web browser before you install it and, you know, wait and see kind of what updates Zoom brings maybe in the next month or so. Hopefully they actually deliver on encryption, end-to-end video encryption, actually change how they install their app on a Mac to where it's a little more standard and goes through the protocols that the Mac has set in place. So so we'll see. And you could try some of these other things. Again, screens.so. We'll put a link to that. Or sorry, is it screen or screens? Screen. Screen. Screen.so. Singular. Screen.so. And I will say too, if you're thinking about using Zoom for like podcasting or something like that, I actually tried this the other day. Zoom gives you the ability to record your calls. You can record it to the cloud or locally to your Mac. And there's also a feature that lets the participants also record. And it's an implication that they're recording locally. And so whatever audio input they have would be recording on their end and getting sent up. And that's not the case. If you record a Zoom call and even allow the participants to record, all those recordings are just what you see and hear in the Zoom call. So any lag or latency or stuttering, all of that is actually in the recording for everyone, even if everyone's recording locally on their computers or whatever. So just a word of advice, uh, it doesn't do that kind of local recording and then syncing like some other services do like TriCast and Zencaster and all that. So just a word of warning if you're trying to use it for podcasting. I don't have to video conference all that much. Somehow I do have it on this machine. I don't even remember the last time I took a Zoom call and yet somehow I do have it on my my new Mac Pro. So I also need those tips on how to remove that because I don't like having that hanging around. Yeah. And I'm one of those guys where a couple of days away from just wiping the Mac and starting over because <laughs> but I, I really want to know how to remove it cleanly. But anyway, let us know. Uh, tweet at us or email us. Those links are in show notes. This episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN. We all know how ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online. You can use it on public Wi-Fi networks and other places to hide your IP address and keep your internet browsing secure. But what you can also use ExpressVPN for is to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Now that so many of us are stuck at home, only a matter of time till we run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. So I've been using ExpressVPN to watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine from Netflix Canada. And you can use ExpressVPN to watch shows like Doctor Who on UK Netflix, or even Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on Netflix Australia. All you have to do is open the ExpressVPN app on your iPhone, iPad, or Mac, change your location to the UK, Refresh Netflix and that's it. You'll see everything that Netflix has to offer in another country. And it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service like Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. Now there are hundreds of VPN services out there, but I use ExpressVPN because it's ridiculously fast. There's never buffering or lag and you can stream in HD while using the VPN with no problem. And it's compatible with all your Apple devices. You can visit our special link right now expressvpn.com slash Apple Insider 
And if you sign up for a year, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So support Apple Insider, watch what you want, and protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash Apple Insider. So the big news came out. Apple acquired the popular weather app, Dark Sky. And Dark Sky is a hugely popular app. This has been available on iPhone and Android. They had an API that was used by other apps like Carrot Weather and Weatherline and stuff like that. But Dark Sky really specialized in the hyper-local forecasting, especially when it comes to precipitation. And this has actually been my go-to weather app for years. I paid whatever subscription that they had, and, and I really loved it, especially in Florida, where it could rain at any moment. I actually found Dark Sky to be extremely accurate on its precipitation forecasts and the hyper-local nature of it. Did you ever use Dark Sky? Are you a user of that? Oh, yeah. I, I have been using it pretty much since it launched. It was a game changer in college because I, I preferred just to walk to all my classes instead of taking the bus or anything. And it was amazing being able to know that it was about to rain in 15 minutes or something. I definitely maybe skipped out on classes a couple minutes early just to beat the rain and take an appropriate stuff when I knew it was going to be raining soon when I was leaving for classes. So it definitely played a huge part there. I vividly remember walking through Ohio State's campus reading a blog a blog post from the Dark Sky devs talking about how, at least at the time, they were staying with iOS only and they had no plans to expand to Android. And I was I just remember reading that and I know things changed down the line as they got a lot more popular and they did have the API and did bring it over to Android. Uh, it kind of makes sense as an acquisition that, I mean, how focused they were really on iOS from the beginning. Part of it is a shame because I actually recommended this to a number of friends who use Android phones. It was just a great weather app. It still is. It is still available. It's available until July 1st. I believe it will stop functioning then. They're not taking any more API uh, requests from other apps and stuff like that. So certain apps, it remains to be seen what they'll do, like Carrot Weather and, and Weatherline. But but I always like Dark Sky. I love the notifications like raining in five minutes or rain stopping in five minutes. So the fact that Apple has now purchased the app and their service, and again, if you've never used it, you should go to forecast.io. It's kind of their web interface for their data, and it's really cool. I love their visualizations and all that. But it's promising because hopefully, I imagine what Apple plans to do is to utilize this weather data and their hyper-local forecasting into the stock weather app on the iPhone and iPad. Interestingly, there's not really a weather app on Mac. You can get the widget in the notification center, but there's never been a built-in weather app on the Mac. So maybe that will come in the next macOS version with this purchase. But I'm excited to see what they do with this data. Maybe they can actually make the weather app a little more useful, we'll say, that's built in. Uh, there's also, when you open the weather app, like on your iPhone, there's the weather channel tag in the bottom left because that's where they're pulling their data from. Curious if they'll just remove that now and go all in with their own uh, weather data. I find the whole story about Apple buying these kinds of apps interesting because Apple has, the term for this in kind of the Apple world is Sherlocking an app. And I think this goes back to an old Mac app. I think the name was Sherlock. And basically Apple built in the feature that the app provided into the standard op operating system. And so there was no reason for the app anymore. Another example of this more recently is with Sidecar, where you can use an iPad as a secondary display if you have Catalina on a Mac and you're running iOS 13 on an iPad. That was actually a feature that Luna Display, if you hadn't heard, Luna Display was on a bunch of podcasts. They sponsored all, a bunch of shows. 
And it was basically a way where you can do exactly that. Extend your Mac desktop to an iPad. They used a little dongle to for that technology. And then Apple just kind of created that feature called Sidecar and released it. Now, Luna Display is still in business, and they're trying to pivot to other features. But this is something that Apple does semi-often. Well, they will either purchase. Another example is the Workflow team. Workflow was a iOS and iPad app that became shortcuts. Apple purchased Workflow and the team, and it then became Siri Shortcuts. And that's the Shortcuts app we have now. And so Apple has a tendency to do this. And sometimes I love it. And sometimes it gets me a little uneasy because I'm not sure how motivated third-party developers will be in the future constantly with this risk of Apple just Sherlocking them and making their app or feature obsolete. If they're not bought by Apple, I mean, fortunately, Dark Sky will at least get the payout because they're bought by Apple. You know, companies like Luna Display, there's no recourse. It's Apple didn't buy them. They just integrated the feature. So I don't know. How do you feel about this whole thing? Dark Sky being integrated, Apple buying them. What do you think? I definitely, I like it. I feel like it might be somewhat controversial because some people are against Apple taking away more third-party options and bringing it in locally. And I know a lot of people on the Android side are very upset that the Android version of the app is being discontinued. But the iOS weather app has been terrible. Right. <laughs> I think they definitely needed to do something else with that. Uh, they needed to do something. And similar to what they did with Maps, they eventually you know, stopped using the Google mapping data and they just brought everything in-house. And now they're doing the same thing with weather. I think that's a good plan. And it's not just the weather app itself. It's anytime that you're asking Siri or your HomePod what the weather is, it's pulling it from... Uh, I think it used to be Yahoo. Now it's the Weather Channel. And now in the future, it'll be able to be Dark Sky, which I feel would be more accurate, especially with the hyper-local weather data and the rain alerts and everything like that. I feel like you can just build that more natively into the OS and be better than it was at Dark Sky. And the Dark Sky team is not going away. They were acquired with the app and IP. So they're joining Apple. They're going to be actively working on this uh, going into the future. So I think that is all really good for iPhone users, at least. Right. The API I am sad about. I know my my father actually uses it to run stuff at his house, the API for his oh. weather needs. So <laughs> right. that is a bummer. But for apps like Carrot, it, the API is not going away anytime soon. It gets turned off at the end of 2021. So there's a full more than a year and a half until the API goes away. And there are plenty of other options. Carrot has like more than a half dozen different uh, weather APIs that's already using in there. And I'm sure they're just going to rely on a different one to do that. There's, you know, AccuWeather and a, a bunch of other ones that are in there that they can pull from. So I don't think that's going to be an issue for those third-party apps as often uh, or as much as it may seem from the beginning. So this also comes, another article, actually Mikey put it up on the site Wednesday. Tile, the company that makes the little tile trackers, is claiming that Apple's anti-competitive behavior has gotten worse. And of course, Tile is probably worried because of the air tags and the Apple first-party trackers that will be coming out probably soon, according to all the rumors. And so there is this feeling of, can Apple do these things, make its own tracker? And obviously, Apple will do it extremely well when its own product has an unfair competitive advantage in the operating system. Will these third parties be disincentivized to creating their own thing? For example, with weather apps, every weather app wants your location because it wants to know where you are so it can show you the weather prediction for where you are. That's the one that you're interested in. With Apple's first-party weather app built into the iPhone, 
As far as I recall, you can change whether or not it sees your location in settings, but I don't believe it asks you up front. It actually, it, it does. I have, a, does I have it? a brand new iPhone sitting on my desk and I just opened the weather app. Do you want to allow weather to access your location? Allow while using, allow once, or don't allow. Okay. So right. it actually, it does. That's brought to all of Apple's apps as well as any of the third-party apps. So that that security feature is, is still in place and it applies to Apple as well as those third-party devs. Okay, well, I stand corrected. Fair <laughs> enough. It was really lucky. I just happened to have a new iPhone. iPhone yeah, the, <laughs> yeah, really lucky you could prove me wrong right here on the air. I appreciate that. No, but well, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought it up because no, that's, that's good. But I will say this. My point still stands that I was getting to is I am extremely picky as to what apps get my location data. And Dark Sky was one of the few apps that I allowed because it brought tremendous features when it had my data. And I trusted the developers that they weren't doing something nefarious, unlike Zoom. So, but I'm also picky, like most other apps, I'll only do allow while using. And something like weather, you really want to always allow because the predictions and forecasts are going to be off. You have to, especially if you want the rain alerts. Especially if you want the rain alerts. Something like a location tracker for a tile or Apple's AirTags, be curious to know how how much of an advantage Apple will give its first party products as as opposed to others. A big thing that supposedly might be changing in the near future, but default apps on iOS, such as you cannot set Gmail as the default email app, and you can't set Fantastical as the default calendar app. So when you click a date and time in an email, you can't have Fantastical appear. So there's still those anti competitive behaviors and some of these features. And so as Apple continues to buy these companies and bring them in-house, it's great, especially for us iPhone users. I mean, Apple is getting the best of the best, but I'm just, again, a little leery of how it might disincentivize third parties and developers into keeping up their their products as well. It's a little bit like 50-50. On one hand, yes, it does disincentivize if they get Sherlock. I think the tile thing and the, the duet display, Luna display, sidecar thing, those are Sherlocked. I wouldn't consider Workflow and Dark Sky to be Sherlocked. I mean, they got acquired. They got bought out. You know, Apple isn't. Right. Apple doesn't launch its own feature that all of a sudden made Dark Sky irrelevant. They actually brought them on board. So I'm I'm all good with that. And I think Apple has been trending in the right direction. A while ago, we got the ability to delete first-party apps. You could delete the weather app and use a third-party weather app if you wanted to. But you couldn't make things, like you said, uh, a new default mail, a new default web browser, a new default camera or calendar, anything like that. And we've actually seen sounds like iOS 14. We may get that feature. So I think that could put it in a really good position because then you could use Apple and their new evolution of dark sky or you could use any other third-party app and set that to be your default weather app going forward so i think that that part is where apple is trending to so i think that's good but on the same time it depends if you trust apple that much i mean i think most people do i definitely do i trust apple more than some of the random third-party developers especially when it gets to like a free weather app because like what are you getting for free there's no ads really on here and you're getting my location data you know there shouldn't be any surprise of that they're somehow sharing or, or making money off of that data that they're collecting from you. Right. So I think with some of those third-party weather apps, I would much prefer to have 
Apple have that information. Apple is very clear how it uses that information, what is encrypted, where it is stored, right. um, you know, what is transferred. That makes me feel so much better. Better. So if I can reduce the amount of third-party accounts that I have to create and the number of third-party apps that I have to share my personal location or other information with, I definitely feel better about it. But I know some people just prefer they don't care about that privacy aspect as much and they just want those third-party options. So I think it's it just depends on the user on whether or not that ends up being a good thing. So I am curious. I'm going back to the the stock weather app now and how it requests location. <laughs> I would love to hear if they, if any of our listeners maybe have more information on this. I find it interesting if you go to settings, privacy, location services, like on your iPhone. For an app like Dark Sky right now, there are four options. Never, ask next time, while using the app, and always. And again, for a weather app, you probably want to do always. It will be getting your location data in the background, even when you're not using the app. So you have to understand that. But if you scroll down to the weather app, the stock weather app, in that same location services settings menu, three options, never, ask next time, and while using the app. Curiously, there is no always option in the stock weather location services privacy setting. And I know for sure that that weather, stock weather app, will get my location I mean, I guess if I slide over to the widget screen on my iPhone, it can say that that is while using the app, quote unquote, so it'll get my location then. But I find it curious that you don't have to specify always for Apple's app. And does that mean it's just not doing anything in the background? Okay, so I'm I'm sure someone, one of our listeners is going to correct me if I'm inevitably wrong here. But if I remember... There was a thing that Apple implemented when they put in those new privacy settings where at first it asks you for while using whatever those three options were. Hold on. Let me open this. Okay. It doesn't say anymore. Like never allow while using and always. So, but they removed the always one from the default view. So the first pop-up is like while using just this once or never. Right. And then if you use it, then it'll pop up like next time and say, do you want to always allow Right. So it doesn't give you that always option right at the beginning. So I think that I don't think that's a differentiator. I think maybe you just don't use the Apple's weather app. And if you would use it, then it would pop that up with do you want to always allow and bring that as an option later, but not up front, if that makes sense. Mm. No, doesn't not buying it. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I get it. I get it. I find it strange that the always allow would be an option in some circumstances in the settings app and not others. I just assume it appears afterward, because, I mean, even in that modal that pops up, always is not an option. I think it was more of Apple didn't want to... People didn't want people to put always if it was an app that they were only going to use, like, one time. Like, they downloaded, oh, yeah, I'm probably going to love this weather app. I'm always going to allow access. They allow access, and they stop using it after a day because they hate it, but they don't delete it from their phone, and it's still pulling and dragging all their location data. But if you put just, um, you know, while using the app... You keep using the app and all of a sudden Apple's like, oh, you're using the app quite a lot. Do you want to always allow or something like that effect? Or if you toggle on that background notifications thing, maybe that would enable it. I'm not sure. But I thought that was a privacy change. All right. So, I mean, listeners, we definitely want to hear from you on this. I want to if you have any actual information on the, you know, like the coding side, developing side or just previous information. But I find it interesting. Just just another point of information. All of Apple's apps in this location services settings menu, none of them have the always allow option. The Apple Store, the Maps app, 
the weather app, none of the first party stock apps have the option to always allow. All of them, the most you can do is allow while using the app, quote unquote. And again, this is one of those things where do they do none of Apple's apps always want location? Like, is there any of them that you can't put any of Apple's first party apps in the always allow option because it's not available? Yeah. That's very curious because I know it has to do it for the can or for the calendar, right? Because doesn't it pull you for yeah when to leave? When to leave? Or even like when I get in my car every morning, it tells me how many minutes it is to work for my commute, and so it's accessing my location and doing the traffic calculations in the background. Maybe that's while using though. I don't know, but I don't touch my phone though. <laughs> it just <laughs> I get in my car. I think it's when it connects to the Bluetooth in my car. Yeah, it automatically pops up. But again, and this is one of those things where if you go to system services in that privacy locations settings window, now you have all this, you know, find my iPhone, HomeKit, location-based alerts. And these are all toggles that you can turn on. But these, and these toggles, I imagine, mean Apple can access this at any time. And that's how it does that predictive how many minutes to work thing. But these are only available to the first party services on the phone. And so when you turn on routing and traffic in the system services location, that's available, but only to Apple's apps like Maps and Calendar, not third parties. Anyway, I just think it's an interesting distinction. I'd be curious if any of our listeners understand that always allow on first party versus third party. And we'll see. And yeah, how it plays into the competitiveness with, with third parties. I don't know. That's interesting. I know. I feel like I could go. I feel like we could talk about this forever because I was literally just thinking about Tile again. And I'm like, okay, on one hand, you know, they're taking away Tile's ability to do that and putting it right into the OS. And people are clearly going to use that because it's baked right in. But on the other hand, how much better would Apple do that? I mean, between the U1 chip on the new iPhones, you know, the the augmented reality stuff that they've done, I feel like a, t- a tracker from Apple would be a lot better than the ones we've gotten from Tile. Yeah. So it's like on one hand, like they're cutting that away, but also it's a lot better. Do I want to lose something that's a lot better just because it... It's a lot better too because of the competitive advantage that Apple gives its own apps and services Mm -hmm. because of the sandboxing. So yeah, it's a lot better and it's great. But again, like I don't want to be in a world where there's no third-party calendar apps because Apple's calendar is bad. (laughs) And so again, as they gobble up these companies, services, make it all first party, yeah, they do it well for the most part. Certain apps, like unless they drastically improve like calendar and mail, I still want third parties to be incentivized to make great apps because they they make great apps. So that's that's my only view on this kind of stuff. I don't know. Do you use Apple's built-in calendar on iOS? Uh, I don't use, I mean, I I do, but more just out of the fact that it's the default than anything else. I don't ever actually go into a calendar. I mainly just use Siri, ask her what I have for my day. I like the ones that appear on my watch face whenever it tells me what I've got going on or when I jump into CarPlay and it shows up on my dashboard as like my next appointment and maps. Like the way that those are all interconnected, which I mean, doesn't doesn't have to be the calendar app, just the calendar services that you're using and tied into the accounts. I mainly just go through the voice assistants and stuff like that. Just, hey, remind me to do this or schedule a meeting tomorrow with Steven for this or whatever it may be. So I don't use the actual apps all that often. All right. Well, lightning round here at the end. We had an article that said Publix was rolling out contactless Apple Pay payments at supermarkets. And I actually have Publix down here in Florida. Tried it yesterday and they did. So you can use Apple Pay at Publix supermarkets now. Hurrah. (laughs) You know, it was interesting. Publix actually... Before they released Apple Pay, a few months ago, they did the QR 
scan payment in the Publix app kind of thing, yeah. mm-hmm. which is what Walmart does also. You can pay with the Walmart app QR code scanner. I'm always a little leery because you do have to save your credit card information with those services and apps. Yeah, I know. The uh, We have Giant Eagle up here and they were using, what was it? The the failed one that's technically not failed and just kind of in the background, uh, currency. Oh, really? Is that what it was? That was the big one? Yeah. Yeah. So they were one of the test markets in Columbus for currency and you could do that there to pay, which was again, QR code based and bank account based. I didn't like it because they're forcing me to use a bank account every time. And sometimes I'd like to use a credit card just because I'd rather, you know, earn points from a freedom card because it's like higher percentage for that month or whatever it may be. But the fact you were just tied to the bank account. So eventually currency backtracked. They did their public testing. They stopped that. And next thing we know, Johnny was rolling out Apple Pay. So that's been really nice. So that works there. Also, another piece of news that I thought this was interesting. Amazon enabled purchases and rentals in Prime Video in the app on iOS. And this is a long time where, you know, you could not make digital purchases in Amazon apps. Again, Amazon didn't want to do that because Apple takes 30% of any digital purchase uh, done on an iOS platform. Uh, but now they enabled it so you can rent and buy movies in Prime Video in the app for iOS. From what it seems is it is Apple has allowed select third-party video companies. There's a couple others that were already doing this like last year. Um, and now uh, Amazon is just the newest partner of that. But the program wasn't exactly public or announced or anything official until now. So Apple is not taking a cut and it's using their existing payments uh, tied to their Amazon account. Mm. I kind of thought this should be coming because for a while now, you've been able to make audible purchases within the app. That was another limitation. You used to not be able to do that. Months ago, they did add that ability to make audible purchases without, you know, Apple taking a cut that way. This makes sense for some of those bigger subscription stuff like video purchases. So that's cool. And lastly, I just want to touch on this because it's one of my favorite apps on the Mac. Pixelmator Pro 1.6, they added new selection and color tools and they boosted performance. Obviously, everyone uses or most people use Adobe Suite and Photoshop. But if you were ever looking for an alternative that's not subscription-based, where you can just buy an app. Pixelmator Pro, it's a great app. It's actually on iOS and Mac. And Pixelmator Pro, it's a powerful tool. It has a lot of the, I'll say a lot, but it has many features that most people would probably need in a pixel editor like that, photo, graphics, and that kind of stuff. So definitely check it out if you've never checked it out before. Pixelmator Pro is a great app. Do you use that or you use straight Adobe? Um, I don't use Adobe at all because I hate the subscription policy. After uh, I, yes. after I stopped being able to buy it, I left Adobe. I've been using Affinity Suite for a while now, right. but I do love Pixelmator. I love how clean and quick and easy it is to do stuff. What is also nice is they, I believe it is still in beta. I, I'm not sure, but I know I'm on the test flight and they were uh, bragging about it on Twitter. So I guess it's public knowledge at this point, but they are, they are testing the trackpad support on iPad OS. Oh, so that's coming in the right. next, I, the Pixelmator photo update for mobile. Yes. You can finally use a trackpad and get around there a lot better. Well, cool. Check that out. There'll be links to show notes, all of this, the articles, the videos from Andrew and the reviews for the iPad, all the links will be in show notes for this episode. Again, we would love to hear your feedback, information you have on uninstalling Zoom. Love to hear if you have any experience doing a clean uninstall of Zoom from your Mac and information on the location services always allow versus while using for first party and third party apps on the iPhone and iPad. Would love to hear your feedback on that. You can tweet at us. You'll find Andrew and my Twitter handles in the show notes. And you can also email us. All that is in the show notes as well. We're glad you tuned in. If you 
could you take a moment and give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts? We'd greatly appreciate that. Again, we'd love to hear from you. If you have questions you'd like answered on the show, tweet at us, email us. We'd love to hear them. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>